1 Samuel chapter 17. It is of always, always a great delight to be able to preach on this passage, a story that we have learned. If you grew up in church you, from the time that you were old enough to remember anything, you were old enough to remember the story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'd like for us to wish we had time to read the entire chapter. We really need to familiarize ourselves with the story, but for the sake of time, we'll read the first 12 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Soko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched, that is, camped, between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Domin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves upon his legs and a, a, a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and the one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, And said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. And if he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man went among men as an old man in the days of Saul. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the life and saga of David and his anointing, the sort of very private ceremony where he was chosen out to be the next king of Israel, to replace King Saul as king of God's people. But today we go on to look at that one event which sort of stands out in our minds and single David out in the eyes of all Israel. It is the thing, it seems, that they never forgot about. It is the story, of course, of the encounter of the young shepherd boy with the giant named Goliath. Now, there's, of course, several ways to approach this passage. It is a most interesting and entertaining story just to tell the story. But I would remind you that these events in the Word of God are occurring not just to entertain us, not just so that we'll have a story to tell our children about the Bible before they go to bed at night, but that there is meat and meaning here contained in these old historical narratives. There's a reason this happened, and it's more than the story of an encounter of a boy with a giant. It is packed with, with spiritual truth, timeless teaching. It is more 
than that. It is an encounter between darkness and light, between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God that Brother Barry spoke of a moment ago. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things which happened to Israel in that Old Testament age happened to them as examples for us. And so we're going to see what we can glean from this. Let us look very quickly, though, at the historical situation. We find Israel, the army of Israel, set in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines were a very powerful and warlike people. They were quite advanced in their knowledge of warfare. Quite early in the history of the Philistines, they had developed the knowledge of metallurgy, the ability to use metals, to mend and mold metals. We find a little earlier in the book of 1 Samuel that they had denied this technology to the Hebrews. That when the Hebrews wanted something made of metal, they had to go down and see the Philistines. So you see, while the Israelites are still basically fighting hand-to-hand combat, the Philistines were making spears and uh, swords of steel. They were quite advanced in that they had chariots. But we find the situation here was that the valley of Elah lay between the army of Israel and the army of the Philistines, and right down the middle of that valley there is a deep ravine. In other words, that deep ravine, that gully that divided the two armies, essentially nullified the technological advantage that the Philistines enjoyed with their chariots. And so they had fought for some time, or at least attempted to fight, but it was really what we would call a draw, a standoff. It was a stalemate. Each side was waiting on the other side to make a move. And of course, in that kind of situation, each side would try to intimidate the other side. They would try to gain some sort of psychological advantage. And the Philistines were winning that battle. For you see, the Philistines had on their side this one, this man that he's just called one of the sons of the giant of Gath. That man, the giant of Gath, we don't know much about him, but we know from other references here in the Old Testament history that he had five sons, all of which will at one time or another either be slain by David or by David's men. They'll eventually get around to killing all five of them. Apparently, the man here, the one we know as Goliath, is the eldest of those five sons. I was going to ask the kids this morning if they knew what a cubit was. Any of you youngsters know what a cubit is? Anybody know? Andrew, you know what a cubit is? Well, the scripture says that he stood six cubits tall. Cubit was the measure of the forearm from your elbow up to the end of your finger. And typically, a cubit was about a foot and a half on the average man. So this guy stood nine feet tall and a span. Now, anybody know what a span is? Some of you youngsters, you know what that is? Well, a span is the difference across your hand. In other words, about six inches. So this guy was nine feet, six inches tall. And for you youngsters to get an idea of how tall that is, we have nine feet ceilings back in the fellowship hall. You know how high the ceiling is back there? So if Goliath stood up straight, his head would go right through the ceiling in the fellowship hall. 
This is one big dude. I, I was hoping, brother, uh, that I talked to Don Falberg Wednesday night. I was hoping he could be here this morning. I was going to have one of these guys stand up against him because I suspect that would be about the size differential. Uh, Don was telling me he could only bench press these days about 415 pounds. Been up in the 500 range at one time or another. I, I think about someone of that size and someone of that strength, and that's what comes to mind because it's not just the size of the man, but the strength of the man. The, the spearhead on his spear, first of all, his spear was like the staff of a weaver's beam. And the spearhead weighed about 16 pounds, about the weight of a shot put. If you can pick it up, how can you throw it? In other words, this guy is not just big. He's strong, he's mighty, and he's covered in armor. In a day of primitive warfare, hand-to-hand combat, in a day when people fought with sticks and rocks and so forth, this guy is like the Poseidon submarine, the MX missile, and the stealth bomber all rolled into one. I mean, he is a lethal package, unbeatable, unconquerable. Certainly that's what he thought, and that, of course, is what the Israelites thought as well. And he challenges them. You pick out a champion. I I remembered last week that I told you that that was precisely what happened when the crow attacked the Shoshone in central Wyoming. That after the battle came to a draw, that Chief Washakie of the Shoshones, by the way, he was a wonderful personage. I wish we don't know anything much about Chief Washakie, but he was a wonderful fighter. Uh, the Shoshone were very friendly to the white man and protected uh, the trails across Wyoming uh, from some of the more fierce tribes. He was always sort of our ally, but he was a brilliant tactician in battle. Shoshone, very small tribe compared to the Crows and others. But uh, after the battle had come to a stalemate, indeed in that day, very day of primitive warfare, it was Shoshone, the chief of the, uh, Washiki, the chief of the Shoshone, and the chief of the Crow that met up on that butte called Crow Heart Butte, where he came down off that butte with the Crow Chief's heart in his hand. One-on-one, mano-a-mano, you know. Well, that's the kind of thing that Goliath is challenging them to. Well, that's the situation. Let us draw a few truths. You know the story. You know what happens. So let's draw the meaning. Let's get to the meat. What does it mean? May I say that the first lesson that we tend to draw from this is what was intimidated in the last song that we sang. That the Christian life is intended to be a life of warfare and a life of conflict. We see here a good illustration of that fact. Israel was just coming into its own as a nation. Now it had a king. It had a national identity as a a people. But look all of a sudden where the oppositions come from. And so it is with us when we first become a Christian. You know, we're walking three feet off the ground. Everything's so wonderful. And then we round the bend in the road and there stands a giant. An obstacle. An obstruction. Reality begins to set in. Because you see, the nature of Christianity is a nature of warfare and conflict. Welcome to Christianity. Did you think it was going to be a picnic? 
It's like the old songs that we sing, Am I a soldier of the cross? You know, while others fought to win the prize, shall I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? Did I think that I would grease right on through with nary a trial, with nary a struggle when I look back in the history of the faith and I see men who fought and fought every day of their life that they're hanging on to their existence in many cases by a thread? That's just the way it is. Paul gives us that picture in the New Testament of his metaphors of the Christian life, that of the athlete who is in training, striving for the prize, or the runner, the runner who is straining with every ounce of his being to get to the finish line, or the soldier who must endure hardship. Those are the very things that Paul equates the Christian life with. We are called upon to be soldiers, We're given armor to put on. Ephesians 6 will tell you of that armor. We're given a sword, and we're told to stand, not to fall in the day of battle. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm encouraging you all to go out here and buy you a sword or a pistol and start mowing down your lost friends and relatives, you understand. No, we are not fighting that kind of battle. Now, that is what is being pictured to us in very physical terms back here in the Old Testament. But the nature of the warfare in this New Testament age, the real battle is not physical. It is spiritual. And that battle must be fought in a different way, with different tactics, with different weapons. But, oh, I want to impress this upon you. It is a battle. It is a struggle. When you made peace with God, the world declared war on you. When you bowed to the reign of Jesus Christ, Satan unleashed his hosts on you. This is a fight to the finish. It is not optional whether you stand or fall. He that is born of God overcomes the world, says John. He must. And you can well once saved always say, you know, I'm just you know, I don't have to worry about things like that. My friend, you're either going to overcome the world or the world's going to overcome you. One or the other. You will either overcome the flesh or the flesh will overcome you. You will either put away sin or sin will put you away. One or the other. It is a battle from this day forward. And then secondly, the second lesson we learn here is that spiritual declension, God removing His grace, His Spirit from us, always weakens a people. You remember just last week we read of how when David was anointed, the Spirit of God came upon him, but the Spirit of God departed from Saul. Is that not what we see throughout Old Testament history? That it really didn't matter how many, how big, how powerful, how strong Israel might be. If God was with them, they won. They were victorious. And it also didn't matter how big, how numerous, how strong they might be. If God wasn't with them, they weren't going to win. That's the way it worked. Victory was in the hands of God. It was His power with which they would conquer. And when God withdrew His presence, weakness always followed. I mean, all of a sudden, we find these champions, these heroes of the faith, 
with their knees smoting one another, shaking in their boots, trembling at the defiance of this Philistine. Now, why didn't Saul go fight him? I mean, you know, they got their big guy. Who's the tallest guy we got? Saul. You remember that was the description. Of, he was the tallest. Okay, you know, you play a basketball game, they got the seven foot center. We gotta put our big guy on their big guy, right? Well, Saul, you're the big guy. You wasn't gonna go fight. What about Jonathan? We read just a couple of chapters earlier than this that Jonathan went out and single handedly killed twenty Philistines in one battle. Well, Jonathan wasn't going to fight. What about Abner? He was the commander-in-chief of the army. I mean, he's the one. It's his responsibility to win the war. No, he wasn't going to go fight. The sad fact is that no matter how strong, how powerful, how bold, courageous we may think we are, how courageous we've been in the past, when God removes his spirit, we're made weak, just like Samson, when the hair was cut off. He was as weak as any other man on the face of the earth. And then thirdly, another lesson is that we find God always has his man on the scene. And it's oftentimes the most unlikely of men. I mean, God's normal procedure is to raise up someone from some place, from some quarter, to deliver his people. It may be as unlikely a fellow as Gideon. When the Midianites have come into the land of Israel, as numerous as grasshoppers, the Scripture tell us, and old Gideon hiding out behind the wine press trying to get his wheat threshed before they come and take it away from him, and the angel shows up and says, Hail, thou mighty man of valor! And I'm sure Gideon looked around, you know. This guy, you study the life of Gideon, this guy was not, shall I say, marine material. It's not your tongue. He was not a self-starter, as we say. This guy needed lots and lots of work. In the days of the captivity, who would have thought that it would have been a Persian king? Who would have looked to that quarter in that direction, to a Cyrus that God would raise up and use for the deliverance of his people? Who would have looked in... 16th century Germany to a Catholic monk by the name of Luther to have been the one that God would have raised up. Or a Wycliffe in England, a Knox in Scotland. Who would have thought a Whitfield or a Wesley preaching out in the open fields in England and America? Who would have thought an Edwards or a Nettleton? God has his men, and he raises them up to deliver his people. And so it is that here comes this young boy, not even a soldier. The only reason he's even there at the battlefield, if you read on, is that he's been sent by his father just to deliver some goods, deliver some food to his older brothers. The three oldest boys are out there in the army fighting for Saul. It's the only reason he's there. He's just there on an errand from his dad just happens upon the scene when this old giant comes marching out defying the army of Israel. He wasn't a soldier. He's just a boy. Saul says, you're just a youth. And Goliath has been a man of war from his youth. You're inexperienced. You, you don't know anything about what's going on here. But though giant, Goliath was a giant 
in body. David was a giant in faith. Faith, you see, shifts the issue. I've tried to impress this on you over the years. That what we mean, that when we put our trust and our confidence, our reliance in another, is that then the issue shifts from how capable we are to the capability of the object of our faith. It's not a question anymore of how strong we are. It's how strong the one is in whom we trust. It's not a question of our righteousness. It's His righteousness. Not our ability, but His ability. You see, David didn't see this as just a conflict between him and Goliath. He saw this as a conflict between the God of Israel and an uncircumcised Philistine. That's how he saw the issue. Terry Phillips, our resident hippie, one day over on Airways showed up for one of our services with one of Terry's T-shirts. You know Terry, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, this one was quite memorable. It caught my attention because on the back, I'm not sure what was on the front, but on the back, it is a picture of this very scene after the battle. Saul and Abner and Jonathan, the leaders of the army of Israel, are up here. And here's David, just a little boy, with his back to you in, in the painting, holding this gigantic head. I mean, this head looked like it's about three feet around. And here is this young lad standing there, just standing there, you know, before Saul and Abner with this huge head with all the blood dripping out. And over the title, up over the top of it, said, No Contest. One even close. Because, you see, this wasn't a contest between a shepherd boy and a giant. This was a contest. Faith made it a contest between the God of Israel and an uncircumcised Philistine defying him. Made all the difference in the world. So everybody else is shaking. I tell you, it's humorous as you read on down here. Everybody else is just trembling, shaking in their boots, shaking, trembling, and hiding in the trench that they've dug, you know. And David is like, he's just jumping up and down. He says, what's going to happen to the guy that kills this guy? And they say, oh, man, he's going to get a lot of money. And why, the king's going to give him his daughter to marry. And, and, he, and he'll forgive his family all their debts. And I mean, David just, what a deal, what a deal. Everybody else is just shaking, cowering. Now, there was confidence with David. There was boldness with David. But it was not self-confidence. It was not some false bravado that we see in the professional sports, especially in our day. You know, I'm so once standing over taunting someone how wonderful I am. In a sense, the psychologists are right. That people need a sense of confidence in order to function. But where they go astray is to say that, you know, you've got to build self-confidence. That's not it. That's not the message of the Scripture. That's not the confidence that David has. He is confident in his God. 
He's seen him work before, and he's confident that he'll work again. One of my old preacher friends, Earl Blackburn, out in L.A., he said uh, Goliath had his armor bearer to carry his shield. David had Goliath to carry his sword. (laughs) You see, that's the point. In the eyes of David, this was no contest. And then, have you noticed here the attempt to get David to make war with Goliath like Goliath is making war on them? You perhaps know the story that as David, you know, volunteers for the task and they select him and say, okay, we'll let you go fight him, that the first thing they do is attempt to dress him up in Saul's armor. And they give him Saul's sword. In other words, the idea is you've got to fight fire with fire. You know, their guy's got armor, our guy's got to have armor. Their guy's got a sword, our guy's got to have a sword. My friend, the whole... Oh, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. The whole message of the Bible is that you don't fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water. Think about it. Overcome evil with evil. Is that what the Scripture says? Overcome evil we're good. They, they use weapons of the flesh. So we use weapons of the flesh, right? Paul says, no, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare, he says over in 2 Corinthians 10, they're, they're not carnal. They're not fleshly. You can't see them. But he says, they are mighty through the power of God to the pulling down of strongholds, to the casting down of imaginations, to the taking captive of every thought, to the obedience of Christ. They'll get the job done. You may not be able to see it. We can't make folks bleed with it. You can't shoot them with it. But oh, in the hands of God, they are effectual. And so it is with us, I fear, that in this day, that we embrace the fleshly methods, the fleshly motivations, the wall, when I was about to say Wall Street, I guess Madison Avenue tactics, Hollywood tactics of impressing men, influencing men, wooing men. You may wonder, why do we talk so much about days gone by? You know, we're really out of, out of the times here. We spend so much of our... Steve talks about some songwriter from the 19th century, and I'm talking about... Folks, back in the 16th century. Well, it's because of what God said to Jeremiah. Stand in the ways and ask for the old paths. Wherein is the good way? And walk therein. Find out the path that others have walked. The saints of old have trod. That's why, my friend, we're interested in what happened 100 years ago. 200 and 300 and 1,000 years ago. It's because we're interested in discerning that old path. To see the trail that the saints of old have walked. And I say, go back and study their lives. Look at how they did it. And you'll see that it was not in the flashiness of modern pride and arrogance. But oh my, 
It was in that air of humility, but oh, there was a boldness. I, I still go back to old Roth Barnard. In our day, I don't know of anybody else that comes close to the boldness that you saw with the apostles than old Barnard. Tell you story after story, I, I gotta stop myself or I'll get us all chasing, chasing rabbits. But just to tell you this, one time a lady came to him upset about his manner, the way he did things, the way he preached. And man, he was tough on you. I'll say that. You ever heard some of his messages? He is tough. And she said, Brother Barnard, don't you know you can catch more flies with sugar than with vinegar? And he says, Lady, I'm not trying to catch flies. I'm trying to slay proud sinners. We get around to catching flies, we'll use a little sugar. But in the meanwhile, this is the task. This is what we're up to. And then notice how the wicked carry the instruments of their own destruction. The last thing in Goliath's mind that day as he went out to fight and do battle with David is that his head would be severed from his body with his own sword. No doubt he had fought many times before. He had conquered many times before. And his weapons in his mind were unstoppable and undefeatable. But oh, my friend, never fear the power of the enemy. Destroy himself. That is why the kingdoms of this world are such easy pickings, shall we say, for the sovereignty of our God. What does God do to allow the kingdom of Babylon, that great powerful worldwide kingdom of Babylon. What, what is necessary for it to fall? Just let it run its course. Let the same greed and avarice and self-seeking that brought that kingdom into being, suddenly its enemies have rise up against it. It, it grows slothful. But the Medes and the Persians with that same spirit. You, you see, that's the problem with a, a kingdom, Satan's kingdom that is based on self-advancement, self-glorification. That if we are all here this morning wanting to be number one, we've got a problem on our hands. There can only be one number one. If we all want to be telling what everybody else what to do, we've got a real problem. By nature, only one person can be in that position. And so it is that the kingdom of Satan has within itself the principle of its own destruction. And then let me quickly add this. One other lesson, and perhaps this is the most important, is that when David went out there to meet Goliath, he didn't go to play chess with him. He didn't go to defeat him at Tiddlywinks. He didn't go to try to reason with him or to reform him or to, as the liberals say, fan the spark of goodness in the heart of Goliath. He went down there to kill him. Do you understand what I mean by that? That in this battle that we fight, I reiterate, it is a fight to the death. You either kill the enemy or the enemy kills you. Learn that from old Saul. You remember Saul? Wouldn't kill all the Amalekites, you remember? He was sent to wipe them all out, and he didn't do it. Brought back the king, brought back the best of the sheep and the goats to sacrifice. Remember, that was the reason the kingdom was taken away from him. Look at the end of Saul. 
You find yourself in David's camp. A man comes into the camp bringing Saul's crown to him. David says, how'd you get that thing? Oh, he says, I was out there in the middle of the battle and I saw Saul fall, but he didn't die. And Saul said to me, run your sword through me. Kill me. Don't let me fall into the hands of the enemy. So I took my sword and I killed him. And I brought you his crown. And David said, who are you? He says, I'm an Amalekite. You don't kill them, they're going to kill you. Take your crown. Beware, what is it Jesus says in the book of Revelation? Beware that no man takes away your crown. This is a fight to the death. Now again, don't get your pistols and your knives and go out and start waging war. Because this is a different kind of warfare. You do more harm than good when you fight on the world's terms. But if when it comes to the enemy within, you do have an enemy within, you know? That old man, the old nation, the remnants of sin. When it comes to that enemy within, my friend, you better kill him. The Scripture says, mortify the flesh. Do you know what the word means? The root of the term mortify, we get our word mortal or mortician. It has to do with death. It means kill it. Mortify these deeds. You, you don't just put them in handcuffs. You, you don't just subdue them. You just don't try to reform them. You kill them. You see sin arise in your heart and in your life. Put it to death. Because if you don't, it'll put you to death. And perhaps the best application is in the area of evangelism. I think this is what old Roth Barnard understood. We're not out there, in the words of Luther, to save the world. The Catholics in Luther's day said, Luther, this doctrine you teach... We can't embrace that because there would be no restraint upon the world. Luther wrote back and says, we're not going to save the world. It's headed for hell. We're trying to save people out of the world. That's the goal. That's the aim in evangelism. We're not trying to reform the old man. We're trying to kill him, crucify him. Peter on the day of Pentecost, knew where to aim. Do you realize that when Peter stood up in front of that crowd, he didn't accuse them of some little old nitpicky violation of their law. He went for the juggler. He accused that crowd of the most horrible crime imaginable. They had murdered the Messiah. They had killed the Christ. So it is, my friend, when David went out there in that battle. And this is the interesting thing about the enemies of God. I don't care how much armor they got on, there's always a weak spot. In Ahab's day, you remember, it was where the pieces of the armor came together. Is that crack? There's always the cracks in God's era. His missile went right for the crack. Well, there's always the weak spot. There's always the forehead that's exposed. And this missile, that little smooth stone David had picked up from the brook, went right to its mark. But David wasn't trying to hurt him. 
He tried to kill him. And he aimed for the spot that would kill him. My friend, in our dealings with the lost men, lost women, lost friends and relatives around us, all that God would enable us to go for the juggler. You know, we, we want to pussyfoot around, play games, argue about some little technical thing of theology. My friend, that's not it. Go for the throat. Go for the heart. And may God, with His grace, enable us to hit the mark. God's glory cannot coexist with the proud haughtiness of sinners. One must go. One must give way to the other. I think I'll choose God's side. I think I'll be on His side. I believe I was a betting man, Barry. I'll bet on God. I'll put my money on Him. I believe in the end, He's the one that's going to be standing when the dust clears. But my friend, the fight is on. The war has begun. You may think that you can come to some compromise with your sin. You may think that you can keep your pride, your love of the world, your love of flesh. May I tell you as honestly, straightforwardly as I can, you must overcome. You must put on the armor of God and having done all, you must stand. You cannot fall in this battle. And I mean by that fall to your destruction. The old man must be crucified and put away. You must die to your will, to self-centeredness, self-advancement, self-enthronement, self-gratification. You must bow down. You said, Brother Mark, how far? All the way down. Stoop. And in that stooping, you're going to find mercy, just like that woman that Brother Barry talked about. Oh, I think, Brother Barry, that's one of the most beautiful passages in all the New Testament. Of all the episodes in the life of our Lord, that lady, those one, what a stroke. David had a pretty good stroke here, didn't he? But oh, what a stroke. Even the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the mass tables. I've asked you before, you got a dog in the house? Many of you do, I know. When you're eating lunch, where is he? Right underneath the table, isn't he? Why? Because he's... Does he think he's a kid? I don't... Sometimes they may think that. I don't know. But he thinks. You're going to stop sometime in your meal and you're going to throw something down there. That's why. He believes you're going to be good to him. And this lady believed that Christ would be good to her. Even though he didn't have to. There's no reason why he should. He made that clear. But she believed that he would. And she kept coming and coming and coming till she received that morsel of grace. There is one who said that they ought to call you and I today chocolate Christians. Said Because when the heat's on, we melt. R.G. Lee said, we ought, instead of singing onward Christian soldiers, we ought to be singing onward little sissies. Oh, 
I'm afraid that's so true. May I ask the question that we sang a moment ago? Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the King? Who will be His helpers other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for Him will go? By Thy call of mercy, by Thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are Thine. I'd rather have ten Armenians with shotguns chasing me than one Calvinist with a slingshot that thought God wanted me dead. By thy love constraining, by thy, thou hast made us willing, thou hast made us free. By thy love constraining, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Let us pray. Father, may we be warriors for you. Strange language when we extol the virtues of meekness and lowliness. But, oh, Father, it is a war in which we war on arrogance, pride, haughtiness, whether we find it within our own heart or whether we find it in those around about us. That that's what the battle is all about. And it rages in the mind of men. It's an ideological warfare. And we must fight it not with guns or knives. We must fight it with truth. We must seek to wield the only sword that you ever placed in our hands. The sword of the Spirit. The sword of your Word. We must wield that sword and go for the heart. Lord, bless us. Give us a boldness, a confidence. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. May you grant us boldness like you did the apostles in their day. May we fear none but thee. Raise up. Raise up. Your men. Your women. Your champions in this day. Lord, defeat the hosts that are arrayed against us. Move in our midst. Use us. Make us warriors. For even as David said, is there not a cause we see that it is the honor of our Savior that's at stake. The honor of our God. May we go forth doing battle, relying in His power, in His might. Give us that faith, that confidence. Lord, there may be one here today who thinks, Father, they can placate the enemy, the enemy within. Father, as long as they keep 
sin subdued, as long as they keep it under wraps, as long as they keep it tamed, that all will be well. Lord, give us the insight to see that we must slay the enemy. May we mortify the deeds of the flesh. May we put them away. May the old man be crucified indeed, that Christ in his life be lived in us. May it be so, we pray, in the name of Christ, our great Savior. Amen.